Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. It is now the month of August, which is the first of three consecutive months that the Church dedicates to the Blessed Virgin Mary in one aspect or another. It is also the final three months, the first month of the final three months of the entire year dedicated to the Blessed Virgin by Pope Francis. And we're going to be talking about that next week, but I wanted to uh, to point about it now. On, on today's program, we're going to have a lot of stuff to cover. The implementation of Traditionis Custodes in the Diocese of Arlington, a uh, sacrilegious mass in Italy we're going to talk about. I'm going to have some thoughts on divine providence, maybe a, a nod to J.R.R. Tolkien in the process. But to begin, the gospel for this past Sunday, uh, this week's gospel, if you will, and um, as you may know, we have spent the last couple of years going through the lectionary of the extraordinary form, and now we're doing the ordinary form readings. And so we're going to uh, read from Luke chapter 12, verses 31, or rather 13 through 21. <clears throat> Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to share the, in- the family inheritance with me. Jesus answered him, Friend, who appointed me to be a judge and arbitrator in your regard? After this, he said to the crowd, Take care to be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not depend upon an abundance of one's possessions. Then he told them a parable. There was a wealthy man whose land yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? For I do not have sufficient space to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I will do. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, where I will store my grain and other produce. And I shall say to myself, now you have an abundance of goods stored up for many years to come. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be required of you. And who then will get to enjoy the fruit of your labor? That is how it will be for the one who stores up treasure for himself, yet fails to become rich in the sight of God. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, this Gospel actually uh, serves as an introduction to a series of teachings about money, uh, which is an important theme in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus does not foster any form of greed. On the contrary, he demands that we detach ourselves from earthly goods. Now, the reading starts off with someone asking Jesus, Teacher, you know, uh, tell my brother to share the family inheritance with me. And you can read in the book of Exodus how in the law of Moses, you know, they dealt with all these temporal matters. And when problems like this would come up, people would go to the rabbis uh, to, to help them settle things. But Jesus uh, is no mere doctor of the law. He didn't come to maintain us in our personal interests. He came to save us. And all the same, though, his response, while not directed to the topic, doesn't change the subject. What he actually does here is point to a higher issue, which is the correct attitude regarding the accumulation of wealth. And, you know, when we bring problems to our Father in prayer, like this questioner brought his problem to Jesus, God often responds in the same way. Uh, by showing us how we need to change or or grow in our attitude toward the problem, which uh, very likely is not the answer that we're looking for, 
Um, but, you know, it helps us to see God's hand in our life and to see what his will is for us as opposed to our own desires. So the rich man stored up material goods, but he died before he could enjoy them. Worse than that, he failed to store up riches for eternity. Life is more than material things. Our relationship with God is far more important. And Jesus puts his finger right on the heart of the matter. He says that the good life has nothing to do with being wealthy. So be on guard against greed, which is nothing more than desire for things that we don't have. And this, of course, is the exact opposite of the message of the world. Advertisers, for example, spend millions of dollars to pound their message into your head 24 hours a day. And that message is that if you buy more of their stuff, if you buy more of their products, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be secure. Then you'll be fulfilled. But the truth is that the desire for earthly goods and, and the short-lived satisfaction uh, that comes from accumulating more and more stuff can actually close you off to God. You know, the goods of this earth do not follow you into heaven. As the old saying goes, you can't take it with you. Our spiritual future is far more important than our temporal one, preparing for it far more urgent. The word and the life of Jesus are sustained by this conviction. So how do you respond to that, that pressure to consume more and more and more? Well, you have to learn to tune out the enticements of, of modern advertising and the peer pressure of social media and whatnot. Because, you know, preparing for life before death, so to speak, is wise. But preparing for life after death, far more important, and neglecting that preparation can be devastating. Because if you accumulate wealth only to enrich yourself with no concern for helping others, like this fellow, it didn't occur to him, maybe I should give away some of the excess. No, he says, no, I'm going to build a bigger barn to hold it all. If that's your attitude, you might find yourself entering eternity with your, with your hands empty. Now, the first reading on uh, this Sunday's Gospel in the Ordinary Form, which is the 18th and Ordinary Time of Year C, to keep that straight, um, is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. You know, in the first chapter of The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis quotes this verse with an, an addition of his own. Vanity of vanities and all is vanity except to love God and to serve him alone. You know, what grace we Catholics have, uh, what, we've, what grace we've been given by our baptism, you know, to become the adopted sons and daughters of God, what opportunities for true peace and, and real fulfillment and happiness that we can find now by loving and serving God. And, and that's what the second reading of the 18th Sunday of Ordinary Time in Year C is about. It's from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians from chapter 3. Therefore, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. Fix your thoughts on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's talking about our baptism. We've been, you know, we've died and been raised in Christ. We've 
You die to the world. You die to being possessed by your possessions. And you're raised up to this new life. And Paul says, therefore, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Because your life is hidden with Christ in God. He tells us we'll be glorified in the next life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And when you think of all that God has prepared for us uh, in the life to come and even now, you see how foolish it is to be so preoccupied with things that don't really matter in the big scheme of things. All the riches of heaven are ours. How foolish that we sometimes forget and, and would seek the empty treasure of the world instead. You know, we have to live in this world, but we need to use the time given us to prepare for the next. And how do you do that? Well, St. Paul continues, put to death everything in your nature that is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. As St. Paul tells us, greed is idolatry because everything and anything that you put before God is idolatry, right? The first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall not have strange gods before me. Anything you put before him is uh, therefore a false god, an idol. Vanity of vanities and all is vanity except to love God and serve him alone. I remember I went to my uh, lunch with my brother a couple years ago and we met at this uh, popular mom and pop burger place and I hadn't been there in a long time and on this trip, they had installed TVs everywhere you looked. Uh, some of them had sports on them. Some had, you know, the weather channel. Some had news. But no matter, no matter where you sat, you could see at least two of them. And now my brother and I, while we were sitting there trying to tune out the noise so we can enjoy each other's company, I noticed a table of uh, um, five or six men, okay, office workers, right, guys in ties. And, and they're all sitting together at the same large table. And every single one of them was staring at his phone. You know, these are not teenage girls. We're talking about fully grown men. They didn't even need all those, the, you know, put in all those TV screens because they brought their own with them. Made me think of the prophet Elijah. He, he didn't hear the voice of God in, in the, the, uh, the, the thunder, in the storm, in the earthquake. He heard it in, 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 as a whisper. You know, how are we going to hear that tiny whisper in a room full of blaring TVs while we're staring at our phone? <laughs> I was reading a homily for, for this particular gospel from uh, an Irish priest, Father Tommy Lane, who was a former professor of sacred scripture at Mount St. Mary's uh, a Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And he said, there is a battle for our souls, there are, or for our minds. We're being bombarded with so much propaganda every day, propaganda about what will make us happy. There is an attempt to brainwash us into thinking that lifestyles contrary to the gospel bring peace. Of course, that's a lie. And he says that's why education's always been such a, an important part of the church's mystery. And he asks, who is winning the battle for your mind? Let Jesus win that battle because we are to live with our bodies here on earth, but with our souls and minds thinking of eternity. And that's no nonsense. Okay, lots more when we come back talking about the implementation of Traditionis Custodes and more right after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. There's more news this week about the ongoing repercussions of Tradiciones Custodes, the gift that keeps on giving. The Diocese of Arlington has now issued its directives for the implementation of Tradiciones Custodes. And uh, this comes from a news brief on 1 Peter 5 website that had the great title. It said, Arlington Bishop Divides Catholics in the Name of Unity. Things, things have come to the point. I mean, Jesus warned us that uh, people call black, white, and white, black, and here we are. Now, Arlington is uh, home to a whopping 21 parishes with the traditional Latin Mass, either uh, on Sundays or even daily. And that's about a fourth of all the parishes in the diocese. Now, the parishioners who assist at these Masses, I need to say this, they're not set of acantists. They are not uh, uh, rigid, hardcore, radical traditionalists. They are not... Uh, people that hate Vatican II, they're rank-and-file Catholics, uh, many of whom uh, you know, assisted at the Novus Ordo for decades, who have been given the opportunity uh, to find a haven in the traditional worship of their fathers in faith, which is, after all, their, their, uh, their birthright, their authentic patrimony, precisely as faithful Catholics. And so they belong to parishes that have mostly both forms of the Mass, peacefully coexisting in the same communities. Many are young with large families and a sincere desire for an authentically Catholic life. I point all this out just to ask, what danger do they pose to the Church? I say none. But they do pose a danger to Catholics, including bishops, who believe that Vatican II was a clean break with tradition and a new start from zero, even though that interpretation was specifically rejected by Benedict XVI. Uh, all the same, it remains a popular view amongst Catholic progressives who are just terrified that if people start going to the traditional Latin Mass, they might lose all of the so-called progress that they've made since Vatican II. So, so you know, maybe altar girls or communion standing and in the hand or, or you know, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion or whatever. Some progress. I remember when I was in the first grade, we had a couple of charts in our classroom. And one of them was, was this chart of human evolution. And, and it started on one end with a silhouette of, of a chimp on all fours. And then on the other end, there's a, a silhouette of a, of a modern man, Homo erectus, standing upright. And the various intermediate forms in between getting straighter and straighter, you know, Neanderthal man and Cro-Magnon man and so on. Uh, evolution illustrated as linear and positive, things changing naturally and always for the better. Because that's how genetic mutation works. Now, a, a similar chart showed uh, the evolution of transportation. So again, it starts with a caveman and a wheel, and then a Roman chariot, and then a, a medieval wagon, and then a stagecoach, and a locomotive, and then an automobile. As, as if this too was just a natural process of constant change that's always for the better. Hence, hence blah, the myth of progress. And now there is such a thing as genuine progress in, in you know, science and technology, but that does not hold true for the faith. Uh, Christ is the, is the truth, and Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, we speak of the immutability of God. Immutability means he cannot change. And the Church's teachings, because they are divinely revealed, also cannot change. 
Now, now the church as an organization grows organically the way Jesus said it would, like like a mustard seed. It starts out tiny and becomes uh, very big. You know, the, the tiny mustard seed becomes a big plant. The, the little church in Jerusalem becomes, uh, you know, all over the world. But doctrine uh, also develops. We say the famous uh, phrase of Cardinal Newman, the, the development of doctrine, but only in the sense that we come to understand it more deeply. But the meaning and the sense of, of doctrines, dogmas especially, do not change. The deposit of faith does not change. And what was true in the first century is still true in the 21st century. But, but the, the, you know, the kind of hard left political element in the church has been claiming for decades that everything changed with Vatican II and that every change that happened after Vatican II was automatically good just because it was a change. Now, philosophically, that's nonsense. You know, change, change might be good, it might be bad. You know, change, for its own sake, is not progress. And things, uh, you know, of course, things are just going to keep changing because uh, the aforementioned uh, progressives will never be satisfied until they've remade the church into their own image. But when it, You know, when it comes to doctrine, there is a process that is, uh, uh, you know, a discernible pattern. And it begins with pleas for tolerance or understanding, or accompaniment. So, so first we're called to accompany the sinner uh, whose circumstances make it hard for him to give up his sin. And we're told we have to understand those special circumstances. We must feel compassion for the real hardship that doing the right thing would be for him. In fact, we must accept that the hardship of not sinning means giving up his sin unreasonable. So under this, this compassionate banner, the forbidden thing is permitted. Oh, but only uh, under certain uh, circumstances and in certain difficult cases, which is obvi obviously problematic to begin with. As Aquinas said, hard cases make bad law. Or as the Lone Ranger said, uh, season four, episode six, Six Gun Sanctuary, uh, <laughs> the masked man said, the ordinary rules must always apply. No one has the right to change the law just to fit their own personal needs. And yet, this is, uh, this is what they do. And once that exception is incorporated into the law, however reluctantly, and, and only, of course, through, through compassion for the poor sinner, once it's incorporated into law, that constraint of special circumstances is very soon forgotten. And then the evil thing is widely promoted as normal. And once it's normalized, this still technically forbidden thing is then celebrated as if it were a positive good and not a sin at all. And in this new paradigm, right, this new paradigm, those rigid Catholics who would still insist on calling the sin a sin are mocked and marginalized, marginalized and, and finally persecuted. Hence the campaign against the traditional mass, which is really a campaign against the traditional faith. Now, in some recent remarks, Pope Francis invoked St. Vincent of Lorraine, who was a 5th century saint. And many people today are trying to use St. Vincent to legitimize, you know, the so-called development of doctrine. But we know, okay, that St. Vincent insisted that the teaching of the church must always be consistent with tradition, which he defined famously with three words, quod ubique, semper, et ab omnibus, right? 
that which has been, you know, uh, believed everywhere and always and by everyone. Okay. And, and here's a relevant quote from, from St. Vincent. He said, The Church of Christ, zealous and cautious guardian of the dogmas deposited with it, never changes any phase of them. It does not diminish them or add to them. It neither trims what seems necessary nor grafts things superfluous, but it devotes all its diligence to one aim, to treat tradition faithfully and wisely, to consolidate and to strengthen what was already clear, and to guard what was already confirmed and defined. Let's compare that uh, with uh, Pope Pius IX, hundreds of years later, at uh, Vatican I. And this is from Vatican I, Session 3, Chapter 2. Hence also that understanding of its sacred dogmas must be perpetually retained, which Holy Mother Church has once declared. And there must never be a recession from that meaning under the specious name of a deeper understanding. And uh, elsewhere in session three. Further, by divine and Catholic faith, all those things must be believed which are contained in the written word of God and in tradition and those which are proposed by the church, either in a solemn pronouncement or in her ordinary and universal teaching power to be believed as divinely revealed. So scripture, sacred tradition, Solemn pronouncements, that is, ex cathedra statements from popes or the, the solemn pronouncements of ecumenical councils in union with the pope, as well as her ordinary and universal teaching power, uh, the power also known as the ordinary magisterium, right? That, that ordinary magisterium is exercised whenever a pope or bishop simply reiterates what the church has always taught, you know, always and everywhere and to everyone. And that ordinary magisterium is therefore infallible. For example, if a bishop teaches that there are three persons in one God, he is speaking infallibly. Not because he is infallible, but because the church's ordinary magisterium, which he is exercising, is infallible. On the other hand, if he, if he introduces something new, he's exercising what is called his authentic magisterium. Uh, authentic in, this, in the sense that, uh, you know... Uh, the teaching is authentically his. But by doing so, he steps outside of the sphere of infallibility. So St. Vincent lived in dangerous times, a time of, of, of many heresies, And he raised this hypothetical question. He said, What then shall the Catholic do if some portion of the church detaches itself from communion of the universal faith? What other choice can he make? And if some new contagion attempts to poison no longer a small part of the church, but the whole church at once, then his great concern will be to attach himself to antiquity, which can no longer be led astray by any lying novelty. I'll give him the last word on the subject. He said, to announce to Catholic Christians a doctrine, a doctrine other than that which they have received from the apostles and their immediate successors was never permitted is nowhere permitted, and never will be permitted. And that's no nonsense. All right, um, the, the next story here, this is something that uh, I saw uh, yesterday, and I normally don't 
like to be uh, um, beholden to the Catholic news cycle. But there's some important points to be made, I think, uh, in this story. It's a story on the Crux Now website. It was posted by John Allen, well-known uh, uh, liberal Catholic journalist. And the title was, Should Beating the Heat by Saying Mass at the Beach in the Water Be a Crime? And the story was about Father Mattia Bernasconi, a priest of the Archdiocese of Milan, quote, a talented soccer player and also the co-founder of a rock group for which he plays both piano and electric guitar, which, uh, of course, is my number one litmus test for whether or not you're a good priest. Um, <laughs> and who is also known, they say, for his youth ministry, escorted a group of 20 Milanese Catholic youth to Calabria in southern Italy for a week-long summer camp. And what happened, you are, is difficult to believe. You know, it's quite the story uh, regarding the Mass that he said, not just on the beach, but in the water. And we're going to talk about that and what it means when we return with more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio after these messages. So stay with us. Okay, welcome back. Talking about a story of a, a priest, a Milanese priest, who took uh, 20 young Catholics down to Calabria for a week-long uh, mission summer camp. And, uh, and what happened at the end of the week? Last day of the trip, which happened to be a Sunday, Father uh, Mattia Bernasconi took the youth to the beach to celebrate Mass. Unfortunately, the shaded area of the beach that they had hoped to use was occupied by another group, and the priest didn't want the youth to have to um, stand on the quote-unquote burning hot sand. So he borrowed an inflatable mattress to serve as an altar and proceeded to say Mass in the water. He's celebrating the, the liturgy shirtless, um, and I hope only shirtless. I, I was, you can't tell from the, the photographs I saw, but you know, presumably he's wearing a swimsuit. Uh, and he was joined in that waist-high water by the youth group and some other folks who just happened to be at the uh, beach at the time. Naturally, multiple bystanders um, documented it with their smartphones, you know, took pictures and videos, which were immediately posted to YouTube and Instagram and the rest of the social media, thereby creating a scandal. Uh, once they were made aware of the situation, the local diocese there in Calabria, Calabria issued a statement, quote, it is necessary always to make contact with the, make contact with the ecclesiastical authorities of the place to get advice on the best way to realize a Eucharistic celebration of this kind. Now, of this kind, I don't know if that means on the beach or, or for a traveling group or what, but um, the, the point being, contact the diocese before you start celebrating Mass in our, in our diocese. It says, above all, it's important to maintain a minimum of decorum and attention to the symbolism demanded by the nature itself of the liturgical celebrations. In other words, if he'd asked, the diocese would have provided an appropriate space, or at least uh, given him the, the proper guidelines for his outdoor celebration. Now, back at his parish in Milan, um, Father Bernasconi defended himself against the, the kind of firestorm that happened in the social media. He went on the parish website and offered this kind of backhanded apology. He said, Quote, it was absolutely not my intention to banalize the Eucharist 
or to utilize it for other messages of any sort. It was simply a mass with young people, who seemed to me sufficiently prepared to preserve the sacrality of the sacrament, even given the simplicity and poverty of the means. Simplicity and poverty here being uh, the euphemism for, for sacrilege. But it's true that symbols matter, and sometimes in a way we don't intend. It was naive on my part not to give that the consideration it deserved. I hope you can understand my good intentions, smeared by too much ingenuity, and accept my sincere request for forgiveness. So in other words, what, what Father Bernasconi said is, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm just too ingenious. But it was naive of me not to realize that some of you would be offended, so sorry if you took it the wrong way. Uh, it's worth noting, though, that in Italy, such a sacrilege, which is exactly what it was, is still a crime. It's a, it's a civil crime. It is called offense against a religious confession. And Father Bonascone has been charged and, if convicted, could face a fine of between uh, two and $6,000 uh, American. Now, the, the, the liberal Catholic journalist, uh, John Allen, who wrote this piece, concludes by saying, here's the thing. First, in an era in which Catholic priests have been found guilty of all manner of actual crimes, from sexual abuse to graft and financial misappropriation, is it really worth the resources of a National Intelligence Service to investigate a case in which the only alleged offense is saying Mass? In fact, isn't there a religious freedom issue involved in asking civil authorities to determine whether a worship service was celebrated appropriately? Second, should we be discouraging a young priest who's maybe guilty of poor judgment, but who also possesses an, apparently, an, an apparently sincere desire to involve youth in the practice of the faith? Well, to answer his first question, yes. The Italian government uh, does have the duty to investigate such a case. Because his offense wasn't saying mass, it was committing a public sacrilege. And I dare say that if the religious confession that had been offered that offense was Islam or Judaism, then uh, I dare say that Mr. Allen would be singing a different tune. Secondly, should we discourage a popular young priest from committing a sacrilege in front of a bunch of uh, children and scandalizing the people in his charge and, and innocent bystanders as well? Again, yes. <laughs> Remember, in Catholic theology, scandal... It, doesn't mean juicy gossip. Scandal is any action or omission, even if not sinful in itself, that is likely to induce something morally wrong, um, you know, to, to cause someone to, to sin, to stumble. Right? Scandal is from the Greek uh, for stumbling block. So you don't want to induce some moral wrong, like oh, assisting half-naked at a sacrilegious mass celebrated on an inflatable mattress by a half-naked priest comes to mind. <clears throat> and, and to quote John Allen, here's the thing. What nobody involved in all of this mentioned, not the priest, not the dioceses uh, of Milan or, or Calabria, certainly not Crux Magazine, what nobody mentioned was that this celebration of Mass was a sacrilege. In fact, even if Father had been able to celebrate Mass on the shore and in the shade as he promised the kids... Even if he'd been probably vested, it would still have been an abuse. According to Canon Law, Canon 932, Paragraph 1, the Eucharistic celebration is to be carried out in a sacred place unless, in a particular case, necessity 
requires otherwise. In such a case, the celebration must be done in a decent place. So since canon law refers to a sacred space, I think it's uh, important for us to understand the meaning of those words. You know, what is a sacred space or a sacred place according to canon law? Well, the term sacred place refers to a Catholic church, number one. And number two, it might refer to a, a chapel, which are called oratories, typically in canon law, in the code. And, and chapels that can be found in, say, convents or monasteries or Catholic hospitals or Catholic universities or some airports, right, outside a, a parish church. Uh, but but wh wherever a chapel or oratory is located, it has to be approved by the diocesan bishop in accordance with canons 1223 and 1229. I want to share those with you. Canon 1223 says, By the term oratory is understood a place for divine worship designated by permission of the ordinary for the benefit of some community or group of the faithful who gather in it and to which other members of the faithful can also come with the consent of the competent superior. That's 1223, very clear. Canon 1229 it is fitting for oratories and private chapels to be blessed according to the rite prescribed in the liturgical books. They must, however, be reserved for divine worship alone and free from all domestic uses. Okay. Now, I'm sure you've heard about military chaplains uh, saying mass on the hood of a jeep in the middle of combat or, or you know, otherwise uh, in, in the open air, either at land or, or at sea. And... Um, missionaries in remote areas where there are no churches, you know, who, who are required to celebrate Mass in the open air or perhaps in, the, in a tent or a hut, right, instead of a church building because there are none. Or maybe you have the situation of, of a priest who is traveling or who's on vacation, right? If Father is on a, on a week-long fishing trip uh, out in the boonies where there are no churches, he still has to celebrate his Mass. And so he'll do it in, in the, the most... Uh, um, you know, in, in, in the best way, either in his cabin or a hotel or, you know, even in a tent, whatever. But, but you know, in, in the way that is most sacred. And, and uh, all of those examples meet the condition of Canon 932 that says that the Eucharistic celebration has to be carried out in a sacred place unless, in a particular case, necessity requires otherwise. And then that, that canon likewise um, applies when a priest celebrates Mass in the home of, of, a, of a sick or, or elderly person who physically cannot go to church. You know, in that case, a, a table is set up uh, with the basic necessities as outlined by the church, and others can attend uh, such Masses, that home Mass, but only the sick person can receive the Holy Eucharist, with, with, with the exception that if it falls on a Sunday or Holy Day of Obligation and the caregiver cannot attend Mass, because they're taking care of, of the invalid, well, then the caregiver can also receive Holy Communion, but just those two. You see, you see how the church makes provision for necessities, even goes out of its way to accommodate the faithful, to get them grace and to get them the sacraments. But celebrating the Mass on the beach because I promised the kids, you know, I'm sorry, it doesn't meet the conditions of necessity laid down in canon law, especially since the local diocese of Calabria reminds us that they would have provided a space or, or at least the proper guidelines, you know, permission whether or not he could say Mass on the beach if he'd only asked. You know, why is, and why is that not found any place in this story 
of Father Bernasconi. That is the fact that, that this mass was a, was a sacrilege and precisely an offense against a religious confession, in this case his own. Are we so desensitized to liturgical abuse it doesn't even merit consideration in, in a Catholic journal? The man had no vestments. He didn't say mass on, on, on a, a place that was noble or honorable, you know, an inflatable raft, you know, in, off, off the shore uh, on the beach is not a sacred place, according to canon law. And it was hardly necessary. You know, hypocrisy amongst religious leaders, something we talk about on these programs a lot. And that was that was the one thing that would prompt Jesus to to full on name calling. But remember, it was only liturgical abuse that got him to uh, braid a whip of cords and drive people out of the temple. Now, when you look at what's going on um, in the church, and I've said this many times, you know, it, it's it's tempting to throw up your hands and just say, well, what can I do? I'm just one, one lay person or maybe even just one priest or religious. I'm just one man, one woman, uh, one parent, one child. What can I do? And I have uh, suggested that that is the right question, but it's the wrong emphasis. The emphasis is in what can I do. The question is what can I do? And uh, David Mills wrote a, a very interesting article that I saw this uh, week, on um, this past week, on divine providence and our relationship to it. We're going to talk about that when we return to the last uh, segment for today's No Nonsense Catholic right after this. So stay with us. So I ran across this article by David Mills, great title, Enjoy Being a Loser, Christian. And it talks about a meme that he saw uh, that ran thus. It says, even if you think everything is collapsing, nothing is collapsing at all because God doesn't lose battles. And it's meant to be, you know, encouraging and comforting. And it's an example of a popular kind of Christian slogan. Uh, But he said it can't really comfort because it's not true. We compared it to a, a lazy funeral homily that becomes a, uh, an impromptu canonization ceremony because it treats the, the departed as if he's already a saint in heaven. And that doesn't, you know, that eschatological hope doesn't necessarily match up with our, our, our actual experience. You know, I know a lot of people, but only a handful of us uh, I would consider living saints. You know, most of us are going to spend some time in purgatory. And, and that's the thing. To treat our eschatological hope for, for his salvation as if we're already a fact, uh, you know, is, is, is not real hope. He says, on the contrary, it's a delusion. And it's certainly an injustice because it discourages family and friends for praying for the soul that the departed. And that's why traditionally we don't eulogize the departed, but, but use a funeral as an as a, uh, opportunity for a sermon on the four last things. To remind people not only of our hope for the departed, but also to prepare ourselves for life after death. You know, Bishop Sheen used to tell a story about a man who lived as if there were no God. And all of his friends told him, hey, you know, you can't do that because, you know, you're not going to go to heaven. And he says, no, I'm not worried. I know that, uh, you know, uh, all I have to do is to say three simple words before I die and I know I'll be saved. All I have to do is say, my Jesus mercy. 
And so it, it fell out that uh, one day he was crossing a bridge and he was thrown from his horse. As he fell into the abyss, they heard him say three words, I'll be damned. He didn't call for mercy at the end of his life because he didn't live a life of preparing for that moment. All right. The idea that everybody goes to heaven is a delusion. And it's delusional to think that nothing is collapsing because God doesn't lose battles. Mills says, everything can collapse. God does lose battles. Or more precisely, for his own mysterious purposes, he lets us lose them. And as we lose, and we lose them all the time. Even though we trust God will win the war, his people sustain huge losses on the way to victory. Right? God doesn't lose battles. That's just, that's just Christian happy talk. Closer to a sales pitch than, than a statement of Christian faith. And it's not harmless. Because it hurts people who, when they lose battles, that they thought that God was going to win for them. Right? It's like the health and wealth gospel. When, when believing on Jesus to get rich doesn't work out, some people conclude that, that Christianity doesn't do what it promises. That, that, that it's just wishful thinking, that God doesn't keep his promises or that he doesn't really care. And many of those people fall away. Now, Mills's point is that we live in a fallen world and we live in a fallen history in which God has only rarely intervened. But what God has done is enter history himself. Second person of the Blessed Trinity became a man at the end of his earthly ministry, <clears throat> became a man, and at the end of his earthly ministry, he, uh, to all uh, intents and purposes, to all appearances, he lost a pretty big battle when he died on Calvary. But it was the means to winning the war. And he's with us still, and he lives in our suffering. He lives in the battles that we lose. And even if we lose battle after battle, Mills said, the other side never wins the war. And he uses the, the illustration of J.R.R. Tolkien's insight about what he called the long defeat, you know, which is well, well portrayed in The Lord of the Rings. I'm assuming you've seen the movies, read the books, know the story. Uh, you know, Middle Earth is is close to complete collapse. It's close to falling entire, entirely under the power of evil represented by Sauron, uh, who, who would turn all Middle Earth into, you know, the, the, the horrible permanent horror of Mordor. But Middle Earth is saved precisely by providence. A, a providential salvation that was still only possible through extraordinary heroism of, of people like Frodo and Sam, especially. And Mills, by the way, wrote a terrific article about divine providence in Lord of the Rings, which I will share with you at some point. But the point is that even Frodo and Sam fail. When they finally reach the crack of doom, Frodo can't bring himself to throw the ring into the fire and says he puts on the ring and Sam can't stop him. Even all their sacrifices and all their great heroism couldn't bring victory in the end. And, the, and that's the message. We cannot save ourselves. That is the long defeat that we experience in this world. But thanks be to God, it's not the last word. Middle Earth is saved through the working of divine providence because Sam shows mercy to Gollum. Remember, Gollum attacks Sam and Frodo right at the very entrance to the crack of doom. Frodo goes in and Sam stays behind to fight Gollum. <clears throat> I'll give you two in Tolkien's own words. He says, Sam's hand wavered. His mind was hot with wrath and the memory of evil. 
It would be just to slay this treacherous, murderous creature, just and many times deserved, and also it seemed the only safe thing to do. But deep in his heart there was something that restrained him. He could not strike this thing lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, and utterly wretched. Sam himself had borne the ring for a little while, and now Tolkien says dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again, and he lets him go, even if it's the, it's the most dangerous thing he can do. And then he climbs up to the crack of doom and finds that Frodo has claimed the ring for his own, which was inevitable. He puts the ring on, so Sauron will soon get the ring, the quest is lost, uh, the world that they love will, will die. And then something happens that no one could have predicted. Gollum rushes into the cave, takes the ring from Frodo, and dancing in triumph, falls into the fire. And suddenly, beyond all hope, the quest is won. And it's the greatest example of the working of the divine providence in the Lord of the Rings, because at various points in the story, starting in The Hobbit with Bilbo, and then Gandalf and the elves and Frodo and, and Faramir and Sam. They all show Gollum mercy and pity. And because they do, he does what no one could have done on his own and what he himself does not intend to do. He casts the ring into the crack of doom and saves the world. Now that's a powerful illustration. Excuse me. Mm. A powerful illustration of the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek and blessed are the merciful. Because by those various characters overcoming their anger at Gollum and showing him mercy, he's there at the end to be the unwitting agent of providence and save the day. And, and it's funny because I know some people get riled up. I remember people seeing the movie who had not read the books and they were upset, man. They felt cheated when they saw Frodo failing. Because that's not what they expect in a Hollywood story, right? As Mills puts it, they want Luke Skywalker to blow up the Death Star. The Christian here, he's, he's got to win. He's got to be a winner. Can't be a loser. And he said, how, how a Christian can't see the tragic beauty of Frodo's defeat escapes me. And the message is an important one for Christians today. Don't make yourself miserable worrying about the future. Just do the best you can which is always more than you think you can, and leave the rest to God, who cares for you. And remember the words of our Lord. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given you besides. And that's no nonsense. Okay, well, as usual, I want to thank you for, for joining me this week. And I look forward to doing it again. But if you've been listening to the show for the last uh, months, really, <clears throat> you know about the problems that I've been having with my voice. I went to my doctor actually in end of June, I think, uh, and maybe it was, maybe it was after the first of July. In any case, I went to my doctor about my voice and was told that I need really to take a, uh, uh, 
extended rest. I need to just stop talking. And um, I was referred to a specialist, to an ENT, who was a, who's a, a voice specialist, in fact. <clears throat> but as you may know, uh, insurance companies don't necessarily think that uh, what your doctor thinks is necessary is really necessary for you. So I have not been to see the specialist yet. But the point is that uh, this may, in fact, be my last podcast, uh, my last broadcast for a while. So I want to say um, right now uh, that I, how much I appreciate you and, and how much I look forward <clears throat> to, to getting back in the saddle with my voice fully recovered. But I do need to take the time and make that happen because, you know, as, as pardon me, as a teacher, as a guy that makes his living doing voiceover, as well as the host of this program, I really do need my voice. Uh, it was it is the one gift of God, and I haven't taken, um, I haven't been as good a, a steward of that gift as I should have been, or I wouldn't be in this mess now. So, I ask you for your continued prayers, and and I thank you for listening to this program and for your support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio, because it you know it's it's a cliche, but it's really true that we can't do it without you, uh, without your prayers on our behalf, without your intercession uh, spiritually. But also, of course, we do require uh, your financial assistance as well. And, you know, and if, and if you can't afford to, to help us financially, that, you know, don't feel bad, okay? You know, God bless you and keep you and know that we're praying for you too. We pray for our listeners, offer Mass for you here at the chapel, uh, at Sacred Heart Chapel, uh, here on, on the... On the Virgin Most Powerful Radio Campus. But if God has blessed you so abundantly that you may be able to to give us a one-time donation or become a monthly donor, I do encourage you to go to uh, vmpr.org, go to the website, hit the big blue donate button, and you can find out everything you need to know to to give us your gift uh, right then and there, if you so choose. So I want you to prayerfully consider that. And I just want to remind you that love is forever, that uh, that. Uh, God loves you and he's looking out for you and the kingdom of God is within you. And I want to say thank you for listening to this program and I look forward to returning very, very soon and continuing our journey together. And uh, and just with a final sentiment that um, it is my honor to be with you and I do truly thank you for listening. And I pray that God richly bless you and your family. And so for uh, everybody here that makes uh, no-nonsense Catholic work, uh, hang in there, and we'll see you very soon, God willing.